All right, well, welcome to RUF. We're glad you're here. My name is Wilson Van Hooser. I'm the campus minister here uh, for RUF at Oklahoma State. Uh, let me invite you to open up your Bibles. Uh, you'll see them in, in the seat back in front of you uh, to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31 is where we will be. We're continuing our sermon series going through the parables. And as always, whenever we open up our Bibles to hear the preached word, let's always leave them open to keep looking back at the text. As you read this, let me get you just to ask yourself one question. What are the good things in your life that you can tend to treat like it's God? What are the good things in your life, the good gifts that God's given you, but maybe at times you can tend to treat them like God. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried to aim to the, uh, by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. And none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're asking that you would give us divine insight. But we know that often when you give us that divine insight, that Really, it is just us being children. It is us having that holy curiosity to take you at your word. For so often, our our stubborn and hardened hearts get in the way. And so we're asking, Holy Spirit, that you would enable us to have that childlike faith and just just to take you at your word. And so would you... Help us to hear you speak. Would you help us to have those inner wrestlings in our hearts as the word is proclaimed? And would you deal with our souls? And would you lead us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? We ask all this in his name. Amen. I was in a mission trip in Yakima, which is up in Washington State. 
uh, with my youth students one year. And one of our jobs on this mission trip was to mix concrete to get ready to build a foundation for this little mini house. And uh, as, as we were receiving the instructions from the guy who was overseeing our project, he was telling us how to properly mix the concrete so that way it would have uh, a sure foundation. And what was funny is that as we were trying to follow his orders, I began to say, well, what if we did it this way? And so I thought this other way would be better and would be also a little bit easier. But here's what was funny about that. When the guy came back, he was like, oh, that's actually going to make it really bad and unstable. So there's a good Wilson moment right there, right? Here was the point. Because I didn't take him at his word, I messed things up. When I had my own strategies, my own ideas, my my own works, I messed things up rather than simply taking him at his word. Ask yourselves this question. Do you take God at his word or are you trying out your own advice? Do you take God at his word? The Bible is his word. Do you just take him at his word? Or do you try to develop your own strategies, your own ideas, your own advice? That's what this parable is about. Do you take God at his word? So go back to verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. And he feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus who was just covered with sores. It's actually really interesting to see these these two different characters being compared and contrasted. The poor man and the rich man. Now, what's Jesus doing? Let's set the context here so we can understand what's happening. If you actually look back in your Bible to to chapter 15, you will see um, that the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear Jesus. Maybe you remember a couple weeks ago when we went through, we spent, spent three weeks going through the parable of the prodigal son. And we see that Jesus was telling that parable. He was telling them to the Pharisees and the scribes who were grumbling because Jesus received these sinners. It's still in the same context where Jesus is actually telling a series of parables to confront these self-righteous people. Here's what the Pharisees believed. They believed that if you were rich, then you were righteous. That God showed favor to you. And if you were poor, then you were not righteous and God was not going to show you favor. That's how they viewed things. So it's not necessarily just this parable about, well, you know, don't be rich and be poor. It's, it's not who has money and who doesn't. That's not the main point of the parable. The main point of the parable is this, is who is righteous? We see that Jesus is actually trying to really, he's trying to really confront these Pharisees who think that their riches or other people's riches made God make them righteous. Now notice the contrast between these two characters. One is rich, the other one, the other one is just dirt poor, he's a beggar. One has fine linen as clothes and purple would have been the color of royalty. You remember when Jesus was being mocked? For declaring himself the king. Remember the soldiers put purple cloaks on him? It was to mock him. Purple was a sign of royalty. So this guy was rich. He was royal. The poor man, Lazarus, obviously was not. The rich man had food. Lazarus 
didn't have anything, he begged for food. The rich man being rich, he would have had all the opportunities in a Jewish culture to be able to go to the temple, to afford sacrifices, to have all these cleansing ceremonies. He would have had all the opportunities in the world, but this poor man would not have. The rich man, you see, in his life on earth, he was healthy, but the poor man, Lazarus, what is it? It says he's covered with sores. The rich man would have had a nice burial. In other words, he would have had, I don't know if you saw that, but the very fact that he was buried, it implies that friends and family would have spent time to bury him. Do you read that about Lazarus? Was he buried? No, because people probably forgot about him. You also see that clearly the rich man would have been able to dine. You see, feasted sumptuously. He would have been able to dine extravagantly, no doubt inviting friends over. But no doubt when they would go to his house every single day, they would completely overlook Lazarus. But you also see the contrast here. You see the contrast in their, de- in their destination. One goes to hell, the other goes to heaven. There's another big contrast between these two people. Did you notice as we read? Which one of them is named? The poor man. The poor man is named. Now, why is that interesting? Well, for one, in all the parables of Jesus, this is the only person who is ever named. But then secondly, what does his name mean? His name means that God will help him. Right? Even though this rich man didn't help him at all. But God, who is far more rich than this rich man, God will help him. But there's also something else. Isn't it true in our modern day that we often overlook and never get to know the name of people who are beggars? How often, maybe, maybe when you see them in Stillwater, but certainly in big cities, that when you walk by a street corner and you see someone who's a beggar, how often have you stopped to ask that person's name? But we know the names of Kim Kardashian and Elon Musk. You see, what Jesus is actually saying here is that in God's eyes, there is one person's name who is remembered. The question is, why is his name remembered as opposed to the rich man? We'll get to that. But you see the contrast here. Jesus is, he's kind of digging into the conscience of the Pharisees here. But there is some comparison. They both had life. They both had sin. They both died. But we see that both of them did not have the philosophy of YOLO, you only live once. They went somewhere. They both clearly, they both had the word. That's what Jesus is building up to. But then also in the word, they both would have had Abraham's example to take God at his word. See, it's an interesting comparison, an interesting, interesting contrast. But it's the poor man, it is Lazarus who receives God's help. You see, the rich man, here's what's interesting. Look at verse 24. And he called out, when he's in hell, he calls out, Father Abraham. Now, why is that interesting? He calls out Father Abraham rather than Father God. You see, once again, this is something we need to remember that our prayers do not need to go to anyone else but Jesus Christ himself. Not to any other patron saint, not to Mary. They go to Christ. You see, but this man, he calls out to Father Abraham. 
Now, when he cries out to Father Abraham, what is he saying? He's saying, have mercy on me. But then what does that mercy look like? Well, send Lazarus. Here's what's really interesting. Don't you see him? He's still trying to demand from Lazarus. Send Lazarus just to dip the end of his finger in some water to come and cool my tongue. What is he praying? Here's what he's praying. He's not praying for mercy and forgiveness of his sins. He's praying for relief of punishment. My friends, to be a Christian is not to merely want to escape God's wrath. It is to ask for mercy for sins. But this rich man, he only wants relief from punishment, which he's just still so selfish. He just wants comfort. Comfort is good. But comfort, when it becomes an ultimate thing, it can become your God and it can destroy you. You see, you need to take heart that if you're the type of person where when you see your sin and you're just cringing within, that is a good sign. When you see your sin, when you, when you know the things that you've done and you, your conscience cringes inside and it hurts and maybe memories of the past, the things that you've done, when you cringe and when you find your, your soul immediately praying, Father, have mercy upon me, dear friends, take heart. God's at work. Who put that very desire to call out for mercy in there but God himself? Calling out to God is not saying, Lord, just make my life easy. It's saying, Lord... This is hard, but I'm asking for your mercy and the forgiveness of sins. You see, riches for this rich man was his idol. And we also have idols. What are idols? It's not literally just something tangible where you would set it down and you would bow down to it. You certainly saw that in in biblical times. You see that today around the world. But you might say, well, I don't see any idol worship in our day today in America Well, let's think about it. What is an idol? An idol is something that you treat as God. It can be something or it can be someone. In our day and age, some of our idols are often this. They're comfort, respect, approval, acceptance, finding that spouse, getting that job, having those grades, whatever it might be. They are things that we treat as God rather than treating God as God. It's interesting, the elephant, the elephant, according to this one person, that it has a skeletal structure that is not designed to carry weight on their backs. And so many elephants actually end up with deformed or even broken backs due to years of long hours spent carrying around tourists and loads. You see... Our hearts are not meant to carry the weight of idolatry. It will break you. It is meant to carry the weight of the gospel. Your idols will destroy you. And, but that's exactly where Satan loves to lead us. You see, for you, maybe your idol is riches. Maybe you are someone who hoards your money and you say, if I can just get a little bit more, you're like, you're like Rockefeller who was maybe one of the richest person, uh, people that America has ever seen. And someone asked him, how much is enough? And he said, just one more. But maybe riches is not for you. Maybe for you, it could be things like ministry success. It could be respect. It could be being loved by people. Or you say, if I could just have X amount of followers, 
Or if I can just have the grades and the relationship and the leadership and the job, then. You see, it's often the things where we say, if I can just have this, then. That's how you know what your idol is. If I can just have that religious experience that others seem to have, then. Or you might even say, if I can just have this type of suffering, then I'll be a true martyr. But my friends, we need to remember what Jesus' words are in Matthew 16, verse 26, when he says, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will it matter if you get one more person to respect you, but yet you lose your soul? What are your riches? What's your idol? You see, we also need to see that This rich man, he had all the opportunities in the world to hear God's word. And it reminds us that you can preach sermons. You can teach Bible studies. You can disciple hundreds. You can read books. You can discuss doctrine. You can be baptized. You can have religious feelings. You can take the Lord's Supper and yet all the while not truly embrace God's grace. You see, we have to remember that Satan loves to use good things to blind us from seeing the ultimate things. How do you know whether you're really blessed? Here's how you know. Oftentimes when God puts you through difficult seasons so that he would chisel you down and he would loosen your grip on your idols. Maybe some of you need to realize that actually in this very difficult period of suffering, or maybe you're just really face to face with your sin and it hurts, but it's at least making you cry out for mercy. You need to hear That God is at work. He is at work. And he's going to do all things necessary. If he loves you, he's going to do everything necessary to bring you closer to him. You see, the problem with this rich man is that even though he had all the opportunities and he would have heard the word when Jesus talks about how, you know, in the words of Abraham, talking about they have Moses and the prophets, that would be the summary of the Old Testament. This guy would have had all the chances to hear the gospel proclaimed, but the one thing was this, did he take God at his word? No. That's the point. And because he did not take God at his word, He did not receive the righteousness that is in Christ. You see, what Jesus is trying to tell the Pharisees here, what does it mean to be righteous? It will depend on if you take God at his word and you embrace his grace or you reject it. That's the point. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you have all the opportunities or none. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of knowledge or little. The question is, do you take God at his word? But how are they saved? How are they saved? Notice that it's not this. It is not do more. It's not be better. Thankfully, it's not because we never would be. You see, actually, the focus here, it's very interesting that in this parable that Jesus is telling, he does not tell the rich man, at least in the words of Abraham, he doesn't say, well, if you would have given more, well, if you would have been nicer, if you would have done this or more philanthropy or more service or whatever it is, then you would have been saved. He does not say that very interestingly. Now, those are good things that Christians are called to do, but those things do not save you. What saves you 
is that do you believe the message of Jesus Christ? The focus is not on do. The focus is on what Jesus has done. You see, the Pharisees had that type of mentality. They had the mentality of saying, well, well, God's word is good, but let's also add on to it this. And we often do the same things. We can say, well, Jesus is good, but we also need this. See, what's interesting here is that look at uh, verses 29 to 31. Or excuse me, even going back to verse 27, you see the rich man say, well, Abraham, I beg you, at least send people to my family and warn them. Surely if they see someone raised from the dead, they'll finally believe. Isn't that what we often hear today? If I only had a son, if I only saw a miracle, if I only saw Jesus in the flesh, then I would believe. But what Jesus is telling us here is that actually the contrary is true. What happened when God did the 10 plague, which were also, they were miracles. What happens when he did the 10 plagues? What happened in Pharaoh's heart? He hardened his heart. What happened when God parted the Red Sea? Do we know that all the Israelites who saw that, did they all believe? Actually, no. What happened actually when Jesus did miracles? Well, they wanted to kill him all the more. What happened when Jesus would eventually raise from the dead? The very same Pharisees said, we got to cover this up and we need to spread a rumor. So let's spread a rumor that the disciples stole the body. Notice that they did not deny. You can read about this in Matthew 28. They did not deny the fact that Jesus did rise from the dead. But they said, no, no, no. We don't want people to know about this. God is telling you, you don't need any other miracles. You don't need any other signs. What you need is to just take me at my word. The word is sufficient. There's a man who's stranded at sea and he died after drowning and he got to heaven. And, uh, you know, in this supposed parable that someone tells and he asked God, he said, well, you know, why didn't you save me? Why didn't you do a miracle? And he said, well, there's a raft that passed by you. Why didn't you grab hold of that? There was a fishing boat that passed by you. Why didn't you get on there? Or there was a big ship that passed by. Why didn't you get on that one? And he said, well, I was waiting for you to do a miracle. Obviously, that's a parable. But here's the point of that little made-up parable. Is do you take God at his word or are you waiting to put your faith in either a sign, a miracle, or this inner feeling? Jesus is saying it's the gospel and being saved. It's not about doing. It's not about seeing some other sign. It's about believing. You see, the point of the parable is that the poor man Lazarus took God at his word. He just believed it. You see, Galatians 2.16 says this, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Three times Paul says right there, you will never be righteous in God's eyes by doing enough. You will never be righteous that way. How will you be righteous? By believing in Jesus Christ. My friends, that's good news for those of you who know your sin. Because you will realize that there's nothing you can do to do enough good deeds to outweigh your sin. Because the more you try to do good deeds, the more you rack up sin. But Jesus Christ is the one who is perfect. He's the one who fulfilled the law. 
As we talked about last week, yes, we are saved by works, but not our works. We're saved by Christ's works. Our call is just to believe that Christ is enough. I love this quote by Horatius Bonner. He said, God pointing to the cross says, the cross is enough for me. And the sinner who is saved will respond and points to the cross and say, it is enough for me. My friends, is Jesus Christ enough for you? It's enough in God's eyes. Is he enough for you? One person has written, when I was a Christian, all I could think about was being good and proving to my parents and my spiritual leaders that I was on the right path to God. All the while, I was getting messages that I would never be good enough. Perfection was an impossible destination. And it is. You will never be good enough. We believe in the one who was. We learn to realize more and more that we are not good enough and we will never be good enough. But Jesus Christ is and we believe that and that's how we're saved. You see, Jesus is saying that the word of God has an incredible, a central role in our lives. I love what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Guys, God's word is different than any other book out there. There is only one book that is living, and it is God's word. As God in the very beginning, when there was nothing in existence, and he spoke and he said, let there be light. He did not speak, and then he said... It's not as if he said, let there be light, and then he took raw material and made light. No, no, my my friends, here's what happened. Merely by speaking, light came into existence. How does spiritual life come into existence in your life? By God's word. That's how. Do you want to become a Christian? Believe God's word. Do you want to grow as a Christian? Keep believing God's word. Keep coming back to it. The role of God's word is so significant. And I love that because there are some of us in here and we, are, we just repeatedly go through seasons when we're doubting whether we're really saved. And we're thinking, can I make up for this past sin? Can I finally get over this struggle? Can I do enough? Can I be enough? And you get hounded and you get into these anxious spirals and you can really fall into some pretty bad despair because the focus is too much on you. And what's happening is you're only viewing yourself in light of God's law. And when you do that, you will always see that you fall short. You must look at Jesus Christ. Your feelings and your emotions will never tell you the full story, but the word of God will. Amen. Some of you need to be reminded that even in the depths of your sin, and it's good that you come face to face with your sin, but never stay there. You need to look at Jesus Christ, who is more righteous than you are sinful. Come on now. That's the truth. You need to remember that when you are united to Jesus Christ, There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. You might see your sin and God will, as he grows you, he will show you your sin, but he will also show you Jesus Christ. What Satan loves to do is this. He has two strategies. 
One, he likes to make you think that you don't have very bad sin. It's not really that big of a deal. And so you become very prideful. But then when you do see your sin, here's the second strategy. He'll make you feel intense despair. He'll make you think that, well, I'm a sinner. And maybe other people who have similar sins as me, they can be saved. But I'm a special case. Satan, what is he doing in both of these tactics? He's keeping your eyes off Jesus. My friends, look to Jesus Christ. And no matter how sinful you are, when you call to him for mercy, you will be saved. The question is, are we taking God at his word? That's who is saved. That's how they are saved. But then there is this question of what are they saved from? We need to remember something about Jesus is that no one talked more about hell or God's wrath than Jesus did. You need to ask the question, but is that loving? Well, for one, he is love itself. But consider this. If I really did take God at his word and I really did believe the Bible is correct, then how unloving of me would it be to never speak about hell? How unloving of, it, uh, of me would it be if I never told someone that they, that they had sinned? That does not mean that you're a fire and brimstone person. You know, you're Sister Cindy or Preacher Bob on campus. That is not the correct way to do it. But there are times when you have to tell people, brother or sister, this is what the wages of sin is. Because actually, here's what Jesus is doing. Every single time Jesus describes hell, he is going to describe what will happen to him on the cross. What is hell? The way it's describing it is the man is in anguish. He wants even just the smallest bit of water just to touch his tongue for any sort of relief. He describes it in very intense language. What is hell? Hell is separation from God. It is God's wrath coming upon sinners who never turn to Jesus Christ in this life. And it is an eternal place where, where in, uh, as body and soul are ripped apart in death, and you experience that in hell. And you take God's wrath upon you. That's what it is. But what does that mean about Jesus? On the cross... Jesus was not just dying a physical death. He was taking an eternal hell. Now, this is crazy to think about. He was taking an eternal hell in a matter of hours for a countless amount of people. My friends, how awful must the cross have been for him? He took God's wrath so that you might never have to if you come to him. Amen? Never Not for anything that might come up ever in your life. If you commit the worst sin that could possibly be committed, you commit that sin, but you are a believer, you you will die and immediately be in the presence of the Lord because you are saved by grace. Do you take him at his word? It's amazing because as Jesus is giving us this parable, he's actually showing us, and no doubt he must be thinking about, this is what will have to happen to me. Let me get you to do this. Hold out your right hand. Hold it out with your fingers up. Now, from your thumb to a mile to the left. Yeah, because I'm pointing right, so for you it's left. Okay, good. Um, 
from your thumb a mile to the left, that would be all of world history, give or take, up to you right now. Now, from your pinky to literally the end of the galaxy or the universe, the end of space, that would be considered life beyond our life. Our lifetime, give or take, is the distance between our thumb and our pinky. That's what it is. You can put your hands down. Or if y'all just left them up the whole time. Be like, y'all are using the force against me. Here's the question. How long will you keep staying distracted from the most important question of your life? Will you take God at his word? How loving of God and his mercy to even have you come here tonight so that you can hear his word because Jesus is calling you. No matter what sins you have, come to me and you will find mercy. But the question is, do you take God at his word? Love this story by John MacArthur. He gave a Jewish man a copy of the Gospel of John. He told him, come back to me when you know who Jesus is. Another pastor heard John MacArthur tell him this, and he says, that's all you gave him? You didn't give him any other help, any other resources? MacArthur said, don't worry, the Bible is like a lion. You don't need to defend it. Just open the door and let it out. It will take care of itself. If his heart is open at all, the Bible can do more to reach him than I could possibly do with reams of other study material. What could I possibly give him that's more powerful than Scripture itself? Do you know what happened with that Jewish man? He came back and he says, I know who Jesus is. My friends, each and every one of you have a Bible in front of you. You have a Bible on your phone. We live in an age where there are more printed Bibles than ever in the history of the world. But maybe in our overabundance and in our idol of comfort, we have not dealt with the ultimate question. Do you take him at his word? But my friends, there is mercy in Jesus Christ. There is more mercy in him than there could ever be sin in the combination of this whole room. Come to him and you will be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we're asking that you would deal with our souls. That you would bring us to you with all of our doubts. That you would bring us to you with, with all of our wretchedness, whether we're poor or rich. No matter where we are, we must take you at your word. And just like Abraham did back in Genesis 15, help us to just to take you at your word. Lord, we ask all this in our Lord and Savior's name. Amen.